Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to St. Paul's to the Forum. It's very good to see you all. If you're first time here, particularly warm welcome. But of course, our, the focus of our welcome is uh, Michael Mitten, who's going to talk uh, today about his new book, uh, Dreaming of Home, only published in May, so hot off the press. And we're delighted, uh, Michael, that you're with us. Michael says that he's a He's a freelance priest, or, or you could even say a free-range priest, he thought. Um, but he, he's uh, an NSM at um, a parish church in the Derby Diocese, and also the Fresh Expressions advisor for that diocese, and an honorary canon of the cathedral there. Uh, previously worked for the Acorn Christian Healing Foundation and the Anglican Renewal Ministries, and has published um, several books over the last uh, 20 years or so. So we're very glad indeed um, that he's here. He's going to talk about the main tenets of the book for half an hour or so, uh, and then we can have a discussion about that, uh, whether we've read the book or not. Listening to what Michael says will no doubt cause us to have our own thoughts and indeed questions, and then we can have that discussion uh, afterwards. Michael, welcome and thank you. Good morning. It's really nice to, or good afternoon, sorry. Uh, I had to get up early today. So. But it's very, very nice to be with you. Thank you so much uh, for your very kind welcome, Michael. I do appreciate that. It's really uh, special for me today to share a, a theme that's come to mean a lot to me in such a distinguished and historic place. And uh, I was pleased I arrived early enough to be in the second half of the uh, Eucharist today in the great uh, cathedral. And it was very special to be part of that. So I'm going to share with you some thoughts that uh, <clears throat> are within the book I've recently published called Dreaming of Home, which I believe will be available and can be signed uh, for a smile later. Uh, and um, I will just share this with you, some thoughts about this with you uh, for about half an hour, as uh, Michael has said. Um, the theme of home is an interesting one, really, because it's quite an emot emotive one when you think about it, isn't it? Um, we all come from homes. Um, and home can be a kind of good or bad or mixed experience, whether we're thinking about our childhood home or the home you travelled from and presumably are going back to today and usually live in. Uh, and I've discovered as I've worked on this theme that it is a theme that is full of meaning and significance for people, of course, all over the world. It's very deep uh, in our kind of psyche as humans. But the reason that it became a subject of interest for me actually goes back uh, to the year 2003, so it came back a little while now, and I was appointed then, having worked for the Acorn Christian Healing Foundation for a number of years, I felt God call, to, call me to serve for the Diocese of Derby, where I had been living, uh, to work on a project called Renewing Ministry. And uh, uh, in common with many dioceses, we were finding that uh, our numbers of stipendiary clergy were going to be drastic, drastically reduced, uh, and therefore the way we did church, if you like, had to change to some extent. And I was brought in to kind of help guide through a process of change. Now, that, those words, process of change and Church of England, usually bring about a great stirring of feelings, as you can imagine. Uh, and it wasn't long. Well, I did 32 deanery synods in my first year, and those certainly made me clear what people felt about the project. And it wasn't all deeply Christian, I have to say. <clears throat> but uh, I uh, did actually, strangely enough, enjoy the job 
But on my first Maunday Thursday in 2004, and in Derby it's our custom where the bishop gathers all the clergy of the diocese and readers, <clears throat> and it's a special service on Maunday Thursday for the healing oils, but also for clergy to reaffirm their priestly vows. Uh, and Bishop Jonathan, as he was then, the bishop then, invited me to preach. And uh, I've not done a lot of preaching in cathedrals, and actually preaching in your own home cathedral is kind of slightly nervy because you know people a little bit and they know you more to the point. Um, and uh, I was preparing this uh, sermon and trying to think about all the feelings I'd experienced as I'd gone around churches of Derbyshire, some urban, some rural, some former mining community, some growing, some really struggling, some very traditional, and all the different flavours you normally find in the Church of England nowadays. And all of them, uh, well most of them I would have to say, quite anxious about one huge change that has been going on. And that is what is generally described as the, the collapse of Christendom, shorthanding really a major cultural change that we're experiencing in our nation at this time, and indeed in the Western world really. And what people usually mean by that is that uh, whereas some years ago Christianity was kind of viewed as being the norm by which other values were set, um, today Christianity feels very much pushed to the edge. So to give you an example, when I first became a parish priest, there was no cricket on Sundays. So I didn't have to check my iPhone just to see what the score was at the Oval uh, on a Sunday. Uh, Sundays were still regarded as being somewhat sacred. And in all other kinds of ways, things that we took for granted when we were much younger, many of us, and the kind of culture we grew up in, where it was kind of supposed that Christianity was at the core, well, now it's found to be much more at the edge and just another opinion. And an opinion sometimes which is lampooned in a very different culture and society. Now, in some ways, I find this very exciting. But when you think about it, Christendom has held sway for at least a thousand years, and some would argue for longer than that. To see the rapid collapse of that in less than 50 years does mean that for those of us who go to church, that is a fairly disturbing experience. And as I was looking for, in a way, theological mentors in my first year of doing this project in the Diocese of Derby, I found myself going back to a writer who had helped me before, the American Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. And it is he who, in the late 80s actually, was arguing that the decline of Christendom, and indeed its collapse, as he was experiencing it in the, West, in the American church, was in some ways akin to the experience of the people of God who found themselves pushed out of their normal life in the 6th century BC, which was uh, centered around the temple and having a king and all the rest of it, and they found themselves taken into exile, and there in Babylon, they found themselves a long way from home. And, if he, and he was arguing, uh, Brueggemann, and still does, I think, that if we're trying to get some, some of our spiritual bearings on how to, to go about doing church, being a follower of Christ in the 21st century uh, when Christendom has certainly been pushed to the edges, then we do well to listen to those prophets who were speaking to a very disorientated people long ago by the, those waters of Babylon where they sat down and wept because the world they knew and trusted, which seemed secure even in the time when the armies were threatening, so they believed, had suddenly collapsed. 
And so it was on that Monday, Thursday, I climbed the pulpit steps and started to share my conviction that what we really needed was to find our way home because we were very disorientated. And it did somehow ring a chord, I suppose, with a number of people. And the prophets who were, I found, particularly inspiring, I suppose, were of course the prophets of Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Isaiah, but especially for me somehow, the prophet Isaiah, who from chapters 40 onwards is talking, all of, is talking to the people in exile in Babylon and giving a message about homecoming. And so I kind of imagined what it might be like for those people in exile. Some of you may have friends or even had personal experience of being exiled from your own homeland. It's not something I've ever known. I've only known a slight bit of homesickness every now and again. I would imagine the experience of exile is deeply traumatic. I have met a few, few people who have known that experience and they describe the experience to me as one of a course of a severe trauma and dislocation and disorientation. And so a great deal of work and therapy has to go on to work out what home means when you've been removed from something which once felt so secure. Well, I followed this and I was looking at the writer Brueggemann and at one point in his writings, of course, he, he, he writes this, the preacher's theme for exiles is homecoming. The home promise to exiles, however, is not any nostalgic return to yesteryear. And in our churches, there has been something of that. If only we could get back to how things were. In the same year that I started my work for uh, the, the diocese, uh, I was part of a much larger church in the centre of Derby. But there was a parish next door, which was the usual Sunday attendance figures were down to single figures. And because part of the project that I was involved in was helping smaller churches not only survive but turn around and recover and flourish, I said to the bishop, would it be possible for me to go in as the non-stipendiary priest in charge of that parish? It was only a small parish and it didn't merit a full-time vicar. Uh, and so he, and thankfully the church, welcomed me and a few others to join that little church and I'm still present at that church today. But I discovered when I was there, some of the early messages were, are you the kind of vicar that can take us back to the heyday of St. Paul's as it used to be? And some of them, of course, were off the age where they could remember the great Whitson processions and all the great congregations who apparently used to fill the church. I did somehow doubt some of the stories I heard. But <laughs> The, the view was, if only, Vicar, you will take us back to those glory days, then we can be happy and at peace, because so much else is changing the world. Please help us. Well, of course, I couldn't do that. I couldn't travel back in time with them. What they needed was a new vision. And I think, by God's grace, we're starting to see something of that. So I was interrupting the great Brueggemann, excuse me, but he was saying, uh, however, it is not any nostalgic return to yesteryear, for that home is irreversibly gone. Rather, the home for which the exiles yearn and toward which they hope is the kingdom of God, an arena into which God's good intention is decisive. And he writes, it is no stretch to link homecoming to gospel to kingdom. Homecoming, gospel and kingdom. And I realize that in this homecoming theme, there is very much a gospel theme and of course the story that we sometimes call the parable of the prodigal son 
but probably at least should be called the parable of the prodigal sons, plural, because both brothers in that story are hugely significant. But in that, we see right at the heart of Luke's gospel uh, this strong homecoming theme. And I notice how that parable resonates with people both inside the church and outside of it, and it resonates with something in me too. What I found happening as I started to explore this theme was that homecoming wasn't just a kind of an ecclesial sort of matter of interest, but there was actually quite a personal journey involved as well. Where did I feel at home? I started to look at the instinctive longing for home and realized there is a kind of homing instinct in all humans. We all value a home that is safe and good and loving. But even if we have such a home as that, there is, in a way, a kind of deeper instinct that I've noticed in the human spirit. A longing to be somewhere in this world where we can be utterly and completely safe. So where is it you can go to be fully yourself? The, the quest, I think, of the human spirit in a way, or one of its quests, is to find somewhere where I can be myself without fear or shame. When you think about it, that may well be a longing you find in your own heart. And if you found a place where you can go, a community of people whom you can be amongst, where you can be yourself without any sense of fear or shame, then I think you are blessed indeed. Many are searching for such a place. And I think you can argue, actually, that the kingdom of God was always meant to be that place. And therefore, churches which represent something of that life uh, should have that quality about them as well. Good thing to ask a question of your own worshipping community. Does it have that quality? Are you on a journey to that quality? As I was thinking uh, about all of this, of course, I was thinking of Jesus and his speaking about homecoming. And I was thinking about his own journey and about his baptism because um, I'm shorthanding something of what's in the book here, but of course John the Baptist points to the kingdom of God. He picks up the prophecies of Isaiah, the journey home, the voice in the wilderness. Then along comes Jesus and meets this prophet in the baptismal streams. John is baptizing, we're told, on the other side of the Jordan. In other words, he was technically in exile and he was taking hold of people and pushing them under the water so they could begin their journey home. And then along comes Jesus and it's Jesus who goes under the waters and comes up of the waters. And what does he, what message does he get? Well, he gets this homecoming message, you are my beloved. That's what the father basically said to the son as he ran home into his arms, that prodigal son. It's what the father was trying to give the message to the elder son. You are beloved. You are beloved. You don't have to slave your way to my affections, <clears throat> you are beloved. And it's interesting that even Jesus, as he piloted for us, if you like, the way of the kingdom of God, he also was one who heard that message, you are beloved. We all need it, don't we? Sophisticated though we might be, and strong though we may feel we are, we nonetheless need that. It's Sister Stan, who uh, uh, I'm um, <clears throat> uh, very fond of. She's an Irish writer, an Irish nun. She works in Dublin. She works amongst the homeless. So in my research for this book, I was interested in reading what she wrote. And she wrote, there are some people who have never known love. Such people have never been at home with themselves. 
They have never had the sense of being precious in God's hands. They have never realized that God has called them by name and has loved them. I rather like the short story writer and poet Raymond Carver, who died in 1980, so some time ago now. But he's well known for one poem of his, which can be found, I believe, on his tombstone, which you can find on the west coast of America in Washington state. And he had a tortured life. His home was a terrible home. His father was a sawmill worker from Arkansas, and, and he was afflicted with alcohol and anger. And so Raymond knew a great deal of hurt and abuse in his own home. And sadly, as he grew up, he repeated that pattern in his own home, having married and had children. And his own life took a terrible direction into alcohol and isolation until in about 1970 he was rescued by Alcoholics Anonymous and also by another poet, Tess Gallagher. And for about 10 years he lived a very contented and happy life and apparently they had an open door to their home and all kinds of people would come in and out of that home sharing poetry and literature and art and all kinds of other inspiring activities. Eventually he, he, was, he was afflicted again, with this time with cancer, and he died in 1980. But the poem which he's well known for is one called Late Fragment, and it runs like this. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth to call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. It's such a simple poem, but it was like he was saying this is his life's quest. He, he knew there was a homing instinct, and it was to feel himself beloved on the earth, in the place of belonging in this world. And that, I think, is one that is very deep in all kinds of people. Fiona Gardner, who is a psychotherapist and written a book called Journeying Home. She writes, Journeying Home starts with a glimpse of recognition that something needs to change. We are interrupted by a thought, is this it? Is this how it's always going to be? I don't want to spend the rest of my life like this. There has to be something more. We wake to the realization that something needs to happen. Journeying home is awakening to a way of happening and our relationship with ourselves and with God. Now what this is of course saying is that there is a quest for all of us. And at one level this seems very simple, but my, it can be quite a difficult road to travel. Uh, years ago I was friends with a Franciscan hermit called Brother Ramon and some of you may have read his writings, a very wise man, wonderful character, an extrovert by nature but also in his soul was a deep introvert as well actually. And it was that that led him to a life of prayer and seclusion, well partial seclusion because he was allowed to see visitors. Next week I'm going for my annual retreat to Glasshampton Monastery in Worcestershire and that's where he lived. For, the, for, for many years, but certainly for the last 10 years of his life, while he lived in a series of three huts at the bottom of the vegetable garden at Glasshampton Monastery in Worcestershire. I used to love to visit him there. He, uh, I was allowed 45 minutes, but the first time I went there, I was there for nearly five hours. And he said, oh, don't worry about them, he said. <laughs> they can look after themselves. Uh, but he was a friend because I was a vicar uh, nearby for years before that, 
and we were close friends for a long time, and it was very sad when he died in the year 2000. And when he was very ill, he was, I went to visit him one of the last times I went to see him, and uh, he was trying to explain some complicated piece of philosophy to me, because his brain was far larger than mine, and he was very tolerant with my smaller brain, so it felt. But uh, he was trying to explain this, and when he, I think when he saw me puzzling, maybe it was that, or something else, but something in the friendship that we'd enjoyed, he felt compelled to say something about me. And he, said, he leaned up from his sickbed on his elbow, and he pointed at me, and he said, Michael, the trouble with you is you have not yet become Michael Mitten. And it was a very telling statement. I felt deeply disturbed and challenged by it, and, and instinctively and immediately I said to him, I know, Raman, I know you're right. How do I get there? And he didn't wisely give me the route because that was something I had to find for myself. And I think in the years that I was working for the diocese and doing this kind of external work, if you like, of homecoming for churches, I found I also had to do an interior journey as well. And I even booked in to a counsellor and I said, this is my quest and I want to see you before I hit my crisis, maybe protecting me from that crisis, but I know I will hit one if I don't. I need to quest and find my own way home and find my place of belonging. And as it happened, I'd had a very significant dream, in, and in the course of this dream, and you can read about it in the book, I won't bore you with the details of it now, but I felt I met a part of myself that I had not properly acknowledged. And it was this is part that I had to meet, really, and integrate, is what, we, what psychotherapists would call a proper process of integration, had to take place for me. And I'm so interested by that parable of Jesus, aren't you, in Luke chapter 15, when in verse 17, which is the hinge point of the whole parable, when that boy who went off to live his life with wine, women and song, found, found himself in his far-off land, but which had become utterly impoverished and desolate, and in his own soul he felt terribly desolate. It was at that point, we are told, and Jesus says, and the Greek version of what Jesus said is, he came to himself. Sometimes translated, he came to his senses, which is not bad, but I rather prefer the one, he came to himself. He met something in himself that had to be recognized, embraced, and included in his own soul and life. And when he did that, he was able to make his journey home and discovered that the father in that household, who he supposed to be a father of law, was actually a father of grace. It changed his whole view of God. And this kind of internal integration causes us to come into a different understanding of God because we know we are beloved. It's an extraordinary and wonderful journey. It is about becoming ourselves. And so there are implications, aren't there, for all of this. There's an implication for our own journey of inner healing and wholeness, if you like. Because surely, who God wants us to be in this world is the person he has made us. How strange that sometimes we go through very sophisticated ways to try and avoid that and become somebody else. As a priest, I am particularly guilty of trying to become the person my congregation needs me to be. What a hard drive that is. I do a session with some of the clergy of our diocese from time to time called Working From Home, because they have to work from their homes, most of them. 
but I talk about working from the person God has truly made you to be. And that can be, under all the pressures that are on clergy nowadays, that can be one of the hardest things to do. I loved it when the Bishop of London at the Royal Wedding opened his address with those, those wonderful words quoting Catherine of Siena. I haven't got it written in front of me, but I think it was something like this. Become whom God has made you to be, and you will set the world on fire. And I hope that young royal couple will become what they are, God has made them to be. I hope I will become that. But isn't that wonderful? If that is the way, we will set the world on fire. Let me just give another couple of implications about this before I hand over to you for some questions. Because there is, I think, some very serious implications for our life as a church. Church life, Anglican life, in a post-Christendom world is going to become very different, is becoming very different. It is, uh, uh, this is one of the reasons why I am working as the Fresh Expressions Advisor for the Derby Diocese. If that's not a term you're accustomed to, it's simply uh, a scheme, I guess, that's happening throughout the uh, Church of England at the moment and other denominations as well, that are looking at fresh expressions, new ways of being and doing church in such a way as particularly is able to plant church life or plant the gospel in communities that are completely unchurched. And there's a very exciting movement that's going on. Now I happen to think incidentally that I think there will be strong pockets of Christendom that will still flourish. I actually think uh, cathedrals will be one of these and I'm very happy to be associated with Derby Cathedral and feel very, very honoured to be an honorary canon of the cathedral because I believe very much in kind of what's happening there. But it will require a high degree of sensitive listening to the unchurched. For the rest of us who find ourselves pitching up on a Sunday to rather smaller churches than the one here, uh, I am part of St Paul's, but a lesser St Paul's in Derby, a Victorian church built in 1851 with a congregation of about 40 now. But I'm interested in those who make their way to the doors of our church who have not had much connection with church in the past. Not long ago, a couple came to be married, in fact, at first, the young bride-to-be. And she came to a Sunday service, which was our normal communion service. And she came up the drive uh, and came into church, and I could see she was a little nervous. And at the end of the service, as I got to know and chatted to her, and in fact she came the following week uh, to a different kind of service that we do. It's a breakfast service, and it's a kind of fresh expression. That was what was happening this morning in Derby, which I missed. But uh, I asked her uh, a few weeks after she'd been to the two services, I said, tell me honestly, you won't shock me, I said, but I would like to know. I noticed you were a little anxious when you came into church that first Sunday when you asked if I would take your wedding at St Paul's. And I said, what did you feel? She said, do you want an honest answer? I said, nothing less, please. And she said, well, to be honest with you, I was so nervous. I was so anxious. I stood outside on the pathway for about five minutes and I thought I was going to be physically sick. But in the end, I plucked up courage and I came in. And she was so nervous of what she might find behind the oak doors of St Paul's on Chester Green in Derby, of what kind of people she would meet in there. It was such an unfamiliar breed for her. And she knew that something religious went on in there. She knew in her soul there was enough Christendom left in her to know she would like to get married in that place. But quite what she would find happening on a Sunday morning was something that she felt really quite anxious and afraid about. It's very telling, isn't it? She said, but 
When I came to your soul breakfast, that's what we call our breakfast church, which is very, very different and happens in the hall. When I come to that, she said, uh, when we came to that and I brought my fiance, he said he loved coming. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we do two different things, but for the unchurched person, they come to one and there's something where they feel more at home. Now the challenge for us, those of us who are leading churches and part of churches and have influence in church lives at this time, is constructing churches that somehow make it home for the person who's been there ever since 1943, or the person who has never darkened the door of their church in their lives. How does it become home for all of them? The answer is, with great difficulty. Uh, and some of us are having to provide a variety of services. But you know, one of the things that greatly encourages me is that when I first arrived at St. Paul's and it was made very clear to me by the existing congregation that what they liked best was Book of Common Prayer matins. It is some of those people who would have been there this morning serving breakfast at the Soul Breakfast because they shifted their allegiance to home. It's become a different home. The home they were hankering after when I first went there was something that looked like it had Book of Common Prayer about it. And with no disrespect to common Book of Common Prayer whatsoever, we knew we had to build a church that could be home for the outsider, if you like, for the unchurched, for the prodigals who were looking somewhere to come home to. And so that wonderful group of people began to catch a different vision of home that was to do with the values of the kingdom of God. So if it was shaped like a breakfast event with PowerPoint and film clips and funny moments and songs that weren't particularly churchy, then they were prepared to do that because their hearts are now set on the kingdom of God. So there is so much for us to do and think about, about how we make churches proper places of belonging uh, for those who have been perhaps exiled from church life because what they believe happens inside the doors of our churches is something about which they will feel no sense of belonging but only alienation. We have a lot of work to do, but the Kingdom of God is great news because it's a homecoming message. Just another tack on this as well, because there is actually, I think, also in some ways a political dimension to this too. I was interested in doing my research, noticed, and I don't know quite at what point I came across this, but I think it was connected with a visit I made to Chicago on a sabbatical at the time when I was thinking about doing this book. And it was a time four years ago when the elections were fever high uh, in Chicago because their boy, Barack Obama, was a candidate for the presidency. And uh, so I was very aware of this story. And on one day, my wife and I went on one of these coach tours around Chicago. What a wonderful and brilliant city it is, wonderful architecture. And the bus driver was uh, a black lady who drove us past um, the place where the um, Grant Park, where Barack Obama came out on the stage, if you remember that famous night when he was awarded the presidency after the votes had been counted. And she drove us past this and she said, as I drive you past this place rather slowly in this bus, she said, I, would, I had the privilege of singing there last week and I would like to sing you the song I sang last week. And she started singing to us, Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, lead me home. If you know that song, it was a very important one to Martin Luther King. And she drove us past this place. And as she did so, and I could see her eyes in the driver's mirror, 
and she started to sway as she was singing it and driving us and the bus started to sway slightly <laughs> as well and, uh, and she got deeply carried away in, in a beautiful song that she sang and eventually she came to the end of it and she stopped the bus and we all got off and as I got off I said thank you very much I, I know that was Martin Luther King's favourite hymn she was, she, she said and it was, of course, a hymn he was utterly devoted to. I believe, so Jesse Jackson reports, that on the evening that he died, he had just said to his music director, Ben Branch, he said, Ben, make sure you play Precious Lord, lead me, lead me home at the meeting tonight and play it real pretty. Those apparently were his last words. But he loved that hymn, and if you read the hymn, at first glance, it seems to be all about heaven being our eternal home. You could read it, possibly. Let's escape to heaven and be done with this world. And there is, of course, a very strong Christian message, how there, there is a divine, eternal homing instinct in us, which is longing for that final place of rest and being fully ourselves without fear or blame, where we can utterly and finally settle. But the, obviously the way Martin Luther King read it was that the greater the vision of that home, the deeper the longing to build the quality of that home here on earth. And he was very conscious of his people who were exiled in their own homeland because of the colour of their skin. And what drove him was a vision of a homeland that included all colours and creeds so that everyone could belong there. And when a few weeks after my trip to Chicago, I watched the news reels of, uh, or the news reports of that new young president walking onto the stage with his family, and I saw Jesse Jackson weeping in the crowd, I thought, I think there's a black bus driver in that crowd also who's weeping and maybe singing that song, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, Lead Me Home. And so, this theme of homecoming, this whole quest that's going on in me that I write about in the book that continues uh, creatively in my own soul at the moment is something I think has the dimensions for our own personal journey It has implications for how we do church but it also is about all about what kind of world we are trying to influence and see become in our time as well. I commend it to you, I commend the think thoughts about it to you but I'm really interested to now know what this is saying to you and if you have questions or insights and comments, I'd love to hear about them. Thank you very much indeed, Michael. That was excellent and, and so very true about the need to search for safety but also one's own personal identity and the, the hope that one finds that inner place of safety. Um, Perhaps I could start the ball rolling. I just wonder if, um, if there's a fine line between the search for safety and escape from reality. It's <clears throat> a good question, isn't it? Yes. I mean, for me, the homecoming journey is the place where I, is a place of real authenticity. Um, and so uh, I, uh, I think I can illustrate this perhaps by the fact that... Um, in a way, there are pressures upon all of us to escape into kind of um, places which are not authentically ourselves. And I think it takes very good friends to say, you are being yourself here, or you're not being yourself. Um, 
So I, I'm hoping I'm catching your question right, Michael. So do ask it again. I'm not quite hitting this right. But um, it seems to me there are so many pressures on us to become who we're not um, that we do need help in this journey. So I would help. I, I'm very grateful to a support group I meet with three times a year. We, we go away together and we share really how life is. And I think we do challenge each other as well. But probably that group more than any other has helped me keep a sense of kind of stopping me escaping into fantasies of what Michael Mitten might become and what he could achieve in this world and keeping an earthed sense of reality. So authenticity is terribly important, I think, in this quest. Um, but, but if I'm not quite hitting it, do, do come back to me about that. No, it's very much, you, you are very much, but I think also the, the danger of, I suppose, going back to your church congregation that wanted a, a heyday and the, the fact that in our, even in creating a safe church, we still need to be disturbing people within that, that safe place. Yes, one of, the, one of the things home isn't, actually, oddly enough, is a place where we just settle down, tuck up our feet in front of the fire and say, this is it now, thank goodness, uh, I can relax. Because actually, if you look at really strong and good homes, um, the, the, the people, if you like, they produce are often the greatest adventurers. What we're looking for is a place of inner security whereby we can say, now I can do anything. Now I can go anywhere because there's a kind of inner security that gives me the strength to do that. And so therefore, if churches simply become places which are nice, cosy homes for the, those who feel safe and together and don't want to achieve much other than turn up on Sundays or midweek and just love each other in a gooey kind of way, we've missed it. <laughs> it is actually about coming to this place which is where we can be authentic with one another, but it is very much, and there's something hugely about the life of the spirit, actually, that goes on in this kind of home, as I understand it, which sends us out in very daring and sort of um, quite risky ways. So it is not all about safety by any means. It's interesting, isn't it? I think this is what Jesus loved, loves us to do with the parables, is to really dig around them. And, and maybe we each have to do, I almost don't want to give you a set answer to that, because I think the point of parables is for us to get into them and rootle around in them, as it were, and see what's true for us and start to hold our experience together with what we find in there. I think the general theme does seem to me to be that this son grew up with a completely wrong understanding of what his father was like and what home was like. Um, it seems that the older son had possibly influenced him and had created the impression that home was about servitude. The older son uses the word, I have slaved for you all these years. So it suggests a kind of law mentality rather than a grace mentality. And this is true for many of us. You kind of can think this is what life is like, what God is like, and so on. The far-off land, the, the kind of uh, collapse that went on for him, well, that can have all kinds... There are so many crises that can feel like that. And I guess what we do is we hold along our own experience alongside the, the story. We look at what kind of crises we may have faced that have been for us like far-off lands, whereby we have to, as it were, meet a bit of our own inner self and starts to make our way back home. I think it's a journey which happens from time to time. But if you, um, if you want to research it more, I think one of the best books on the subject is Henry Nouwen's book. Uh, the name of the book just escapes me. I think it's The Return of the Prodigal. But uh, it's, it's a wonderful, he uses the, 
the, uh, the Rembrandt picture as well of the return of the prodigal son. Um, and he uses that picture, the story of Rembrandt, and the story and the parable, uh, and teases out these kinds of things so beautifully. I would really commend it to you. Well, I wish I'd spoken to you before I wrote the book, because that would have been a brilliant. <laughs> Part two will come out next year, because uh, that's a great, would have been a great line to have used, actually. We have left our homes and followed you. Um, because there are, I think, I think what, you could, what you could tease out of that little bit is that there are kind of certain, obviously they meant their literal homes, but you could actually start to say, but you know, we put our securities into all kinds of homes, which in a way, take us away from the, the, the homing of following Jesus. Um, and that is about an inner security of being accepted in the beloved, of being beloved by God, therefore we have the uh, ability to journey and travel. What gave those disciples the extraordinary courage to give up everything to follow Christ was they knew he, they loved him. He loved them, rather, and they were, they were beloved. And that gave them the confidence to travel and to adventure. So I think there is some uprooting of those kind of homes which stop us from pilgriming and adventuring to put our, our hearts on the, the real homecoming track, if you like. I would, I would develop it in some way like that, I think. I, I, I absolutely agree. It's, I'm, it's fascinating, isn't it? But there is this longing for authenticity that's come from somewhere I think it's particularly in the younger generations. Um, and I deliberately asked um, a younger person to write the foreword for this book, who happened to be uh, my godson, Pete Hughes, who's a pioneer minister in King's Cross here, not too far from here. And what he is doing, work, working primarily with the so under 35-year-old age group, uh, it was he who was telling me that it is authenticity, it seems to be the key value that younger people are looking for. Of course it's not just younger, many of us are looking for that. I, I look for it. And so that is a huge challenge, I think, for us in church life, because I think much, sorry, some of what we do could be judged to be inauthentic, and we, we have to listen to those judgments quite carefully rather than just simply ignoring them, and allowing those comments, shall I say, to cause us to reappraise some of how we behave, what we do, our patterns of behavior in church life and so on. So it, it's a good challenge, I think, and we of all people should be the most authentic. I mean, that's, you know, we who follow Jesus should, should be the ones that people look to for authenticity. And I'd love it if we developed that reputation. And, uh, you know, who knows? Well, thank you. I, I absolutely agree with your, your insight in that way. I, thank you, David. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's such a good question. I really love the question. I, I think I wouldn't presume to kind of try and say how a place like this can become home, but I would love it to do so, and I, I could see it, how it could do that. Um, but I would suppose there'll be certain qualities that are happening in yourselves and those who are preaching and leading and so on that is about authenticity, I think. And I think that um, 
where, where it is clear that those who are kind of conveying the message of the gospel publicly in this kind of place, in, in a cathedral like this, where it's clear that they are on their own homeward track, as it were, that, that is one thing, I think, that will certainly have implications for that. Because I think some people perhaps would come expecting deep formality and, and great removedness. But obviously what happens for a lot of people when they come to a place of such grandeur is they find a sense of presence. I mean, you have the great advantage of so many people coming here who wouldn't normally go into a church like mine, who wouldn't come to any other church. And I think they can be taken by surprise by this sense of presence, some, someone, someone divine that actually has some sort of good feeling towards them. That, that does seem to be a kind of experience I've noted that some people sometimes report. And therefore, um, there would be, it would be brilliant, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how, to foster that. Of course, there are cathedrals, uh, and you know well, who are doing some kind of fresh expressions within cathedral life that are deliberately trying to target particular groups of such people and say, well, look, welcome to our cathedral, but we're going to do this kind of thing um, that is uh, going to make you feel at home and help you to know that we have heard your lifestyle and so on. Um, and it may be that some very, and this is probably already happening, I don't know, but that would be perhaps another way of exploring it in a sense, trying to see, well, who is coming here? Is there a particular group, a culture group, that we could actually make them feel particularly at home? So I'm fumbling a little bit because this is beyond my experience. I always feel it's terrible to hear somebody speaking outside their experience, but it would be a hope I'd have of seeing it happen. Because uh, it is, a, of course, it's a universal longing. So it's bound to be there. In uh, with a thought in all the major religions, it's there. In indigenous peoples, it's it's a it's a longing to to belong. It's a very foundational, fundamental thing. Um, but I think to uh, answer your your well, to try and answer your question, I, for me, it's all about relationship. Really, I think we can try. You know, I think it is actually. Being a, walking alongside those who maybe are asking those kinds of questions, where can I find a place of belonging? And, um, and, and just hearing what their specific question is. I happen to think, as followers of Christ, we have a great deal to offer to the, quotes homeless, if you see what I mean, the emotional and spiritual homeless. But uh, we, we cannot just give a blanket message. It is actually has to be personalised. So we, we'll, we will need to do that careful kind of listening to what their specific expression of their home yearning is and to, and, and to engage in relationship and respond accordingly, I think. Michael, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming from Derby. Thank you for your book. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you for making us think differently about words like home and safety and not having too narrow a view of what they might be. Uh, and also thank you for encouraging us to look at ourselves and, and what it is that we're looking for. So huge thanks, uh, please, to Michael for being with us today. <laughs>